Michael Sonbert and Antonio Vance have held nearly every job in K-12 education. They've coached, trained, and partnered with thousands of teachers and school leaders from over 100 cities and eight countries around the world. They are Skyrocket Educator Training, and these are their informal observations. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Informal Observations with Skyrocket Educator Training. I'm Michael Sonbert, the founder of Skyrocket. And I'm here, as always, with our Chief Schools Officer, Dr. Antonio Vance. Hey, everybody. Antonio, how are you doing today? Doing great, Michael. Doing great. Glad to be here again. Well, I'm glad, uh, I'm glad to be here as well. I am super excited to bring out our guest tonight. He is one. Is it fair to say that he's one of a kind, this, uh, this gentleman who's coming out? <laughs> That's an understatement. <laughs> I think we better buckle up. One of the most dynamic and passionate and smart and just cool as ice educators. Well, first of all, people, but educators Absolutely. as well that, that I've personally ever met. His name is Rashawn Reed, and he's going to be out here and he's going to kick some butt with us in a little bit. But before we get to Rashawn, a couple things. I'm going to do three questions for Antonio. But before we get to our first question, Antonio, we are getting... Uh, we're getting metrics. This is our fifth show right here, and we're getting metrics on how well our show is doing. And we are excited that there's lots of people in the United States who are listening to informal observations. But we found out today that there are people in both France and Japan who are also listening to informal observations. And so, I mean, is that cool or what? That's cool, man. We need to go international. That's right. I think that, that we're going international. If you're in France and you're or you're in Japan and you're listening to this, we are talking about you. We like you, you're cool, you're awesome. Keep listening, tell your friends. And let's jump into three questions. And thank you. Thanks for checking us out. Absolutely. Uh, let's start with our three questions for Antonio. Antonio, the first one's always random. It's usually some BS about pop culture or something that doesn't mean anything, but it's a good place for us to start. Uh, Antonio, design your perfect pizza i'm talking about style so thin crust deep dish whatever but also oh, give us some toppings as well michael your questions always get me in trouble you don't you, you never think about uh the impact of my answer um you know what my roots are in chicago and pizza is a, a very important part of our culture in chicago so let's see perfect pizza well it has to have Italian sausage. So, you know, I'm thinking about a place I used to go to um, on uh, uh, 84th and Pulaski. Uh, it's called Vito's and uh, Nick's. Uh, I used to get an Italian sausage and egg pizza. Small Italian sausage and egg pizza. So that that's it. That's my perfect pizza, man. And this is so this is deep dish, I assume. You know, they actually make their, uh, their, their thin crust. They're actually thin. Usually pizza is deep dish, but uh, th this one, is, it's a little less bready. So Italian sausage and egg, this sounds like a bre Is it a breakfast pizza? Do you get it in breakfast? I mean, you can eat it for breakfast. Usually, <laughs> usually the leftovers are for, <laughs> for breakfast. <laughs> uh, well, all right. Well, listen, man, you went a little bit of a different angle. I thought you were going to be more traditional there because mine is definitely uh -huh. not traditional. And this is going to, people are going to think I'm messing around, but I'm not. My, my ideal pizza is double black olives and oh. anchovies. Do, I want, I want the saltiest pizza 
You can, I mean, you have to drink two gallons of water to, to, to sleep at night after this thing, or else your mouth is so, so dry. And when I was uh, younger, I mean, now everything's on like the apps or they take your credit card or whatever. But when you're younger and you're doing cash, I'd call like the local pizza place. I'm like, all right, I need a pie, double black olive and anchovies. And you okay. get, you know, like a 16 year old girl who takes your order and she's like, okay. And she hangs up, you know, you give the address, she hangs up. And then the boss would always call back and be like, they would think because they think you're full of shit because they think that you're going to I don't know if they did this where you grew up. But in my in my neighborhood, people would order like crazy pizzas from a pizza place to somebody else's house. And That's then only in Long Island. Like, is that only Long Island? Is that the deal? Yeah. So somebody would show up with three pizzas to somebody's house. And they'd be like, I didn't order any pizza. And now the and now the uh, the, the pizza place is out the money. The driver's obviously pissed off. So the, the owner would call back to confirm it was a real order. But yeah, that's mine. Double black olives and anchovies and uh, regular crust. But I will say that I used to work at a pizza place. I worked at a bunch of pizza places and they would do sesame seed crust, which is, and when Rashawn gets out here, because he's a Long Island guy too, I wonder if he's gonna know about that because uh, sesame, so they take the, 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 the edge of the crust, the edge of the dough, they roll it through some sesame seeds. And so now you have sesame seed crust and that is uh, perfection. Michael, I can't imagine that you've put together the absolute worst possible things um, in the world, olives and anchovies, to to absolutely destroy what most people find enjoyable, which is pizza. So maybe it's uh, maybe it's like passive aggressive. It lets me keep the whole pizza to myself because nobody else will eat it. <laughs> no one else is eating that. All right, we've gotten through that. That was good. Uh, I'm excited for that sausage and uh, the the Italian sausage and egg pizza next okay. time. We're in Chicago. Uh, we'll go there. Um, what is that? Antonio, question number two. What is something you've learned or seen or mm -hmm. done recently that might inspire or resonate with our audience? Uh, let's see. You know, um, this week I had an opportunity to uh, hang out with the folks from Liberated, uh, who we've had on the show already. And That's right. Uh, That's right. You know, they had a, a very interesting uh, excerpt that they shared uh, from uh, Dr. Uh, Jeff Duncan Andandre. And, you know, he mentioned uh, something that I hadn't really thought much about. We often talk about cultural responsiveness in schools. And, you know, he made a very uh, interesting point that, you know, we think about, you know, Latino students and, you know, what books do they want to read? You know, House on Mango Street, that assumption. And if we're teaching black students that they want to read the autobiography of, of Malcolm X and uh, the point that that he was really getting to is that schools really needed to shift from just thinking about cultural responsiveness and shift to community responsiveness. And that really involved getting to know the community individually and not making these broad stroke assumptions about students. And I think that, you know, as educators, we've kind of all fallen into that uh, into that trap of, oh, this is what that student would want to read or this is what that student would be interested in. And instead, he pushes uh, for folks to get out in the community, learn about um, the, the students and where they live, talk to the barbershops, uh, talk to the preachers and the ministers in that community and really learn about that community instead of just making these broad stroke assumptions. And I, I, it really pushed me to think about the way that I think about students and how they learn and not to just make these generalizations. So I really appreciated um, that push from the, the liberated folks. Right. And it's the idea that like no culture is a monolith and to assume that just right. one culture or one race or one ethnicity just all likes X thing. Right. Is 
um, you could you could argue that that's uh, that 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 furthers oppression, right? Oh, that yeah, absolutely. Inequality. Yep. That's a really that's a that's a really interesting one, man. I'm uh, and I'm, I'm I'm glad you shared that. I my, mine's a little a little different. I'm not going to yeah. talk about Jerry Seinfeld again, but I was <laughs> uh, on a I was on a webinar recently, and they brought out this guy named John Rulin, who is the foremost expert on gift giving in the entire world. And if that sounds stupid as all anything to you, I totally agree. And the guy actually admits it too. He comes out uh, and he says that he gets in front of these like Fortune 500 companies and he gets on these stages at all these events and uh, people hear that he's gonna talk about gift giving and he gets eye rolls and people are like, what's this guy doing here? And I, I thought it was going to be the, the 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 biggest you know bunch of garbage I've ever listened to, and it was so smart and mm. so interesting. And this guy has a precise approach for how you give gifts to get the most amount of return on the gift that you put in. He doesn't use the term return on investment. He goes he calls it return okay. on relationship, and that a gift is not just a a thing you send somebody, but it's actually something that's intended to increase your relationship with them. And it's not, I don't get the sense that he had ulterior motives. It wasn't about the dollars for him. At uh, I'm, I'm sure that that's obviously factors in, but for him, it was right. like, hey, um, I am, I am. I, it's important for me to show my, my clients or potential clients how much they mean to me. And so he has all these like non-negotiables. So like he says, he goes, no birthdays, no holidays, uh, no anniversaries. He goes, that's when everybody gives gifts. That's not when we give gifts, wow. right? That's when people expect it. And I'm like, huh? All right. And he goes, what are you going to get? He's going to get one. Of you. He's like, what are you going to get your client? Who's giving you $50,000? What are you going to give him a $50 gift card? Maybe $200 steak dinner. He's like, so you're telling them that you're, that you are worth, you know, 50 times, a hundred times, 500 times what, what, what they're worth to, to you, right? And it's just like, huh, all right, God, he's like, what are you going to send people a bunch of swag with your own logo on it so that they can advertise for you? He goes, send them something that they want. He's like, this is mostly, by the way, this is mostly uh, white men sending gifts to other white men. He goes, he goes, so let's actually think about maybe we can, maybe we can get something for if this person has a partner or if they have, if they have kids, if there's a charity that they, that they, that they are involved in, right? Um, instead of just saying, Hey, you did a lot of great work for me. Here's a watch. Well, by the way, you sent this guy a, a Seiko, right? Uh, you know, uh, and 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 the guy wears a Rolex. Right. So what are you doing, right? And it was this fascinating thing. And and the reason why I'm sharing it is not so we could all become better gift givers, though. I actually have thought about it, and I'm like, oh, all right. I want to I want to up my gift giving game. And my birthday's in July. <laughs> okay, so that's good. But remember, I can't send it for birthdays. I can't send it for birthdays. Yeah, you can do June. I uh, will do June, but but just the idea that um, it, it reminded me of what we do at Skyrocket in this regard. That a anything can be broken down into the science of it. What's the here's the thing that that most people yes, average person are you good at giving gifts? I imagine most people are like yeah, I give good gifts. People like my Christmas gifts, right? They like my birthday gifts. Like, but dude, what this guy's saying is like no, he's like you're doing it wrong, right? And I'm just I'm just scratching the surface. I was riveted for an hour. I'm scratching the surface, and it was like. It's broken down to a science. Here's the best way to do it. He actually does have science behind it around people's emotions and people are more likely to respond to X than they are to Y. 
and uh, it was a it was a really just a really interesting uh, insight into something that um, and, and we we experienced this this in our work, right? We say, hey, do you coach teachers? And folks Absolutely. say, yeah. Are you good at it? Yeah, yeah, we're good at it. And then we get in there, and it's like, oh, so you're not. Sorry, <laughs> you know, like no, we have a better way, right? We want to teach you our way. Let me show you our way, and here's how we say X, and here's how we do, and here's how we do Y. And so, um, yeah, if, if folks are, uh, or folks are, are getting gifts for us, my birthday's in May, Antonio's in July, <laughs> but don't get it around our birthdays. So surprise us, get us something that we need or want. Uh, but anyway, I just thought it was really, a really fascinating thing. And uh, Mr. Vance, last question before we bring out uh, Rashawn Reed, our esteemed guest tonight. What, uh, if anything, are you drinking? And by the way, I should say this. Yeah. After our last show, we finished. We, we, we turned off record. I said to you, how do you think it went? And you said, I am tipsy. And I said, oh, my. I think we had too much. Uh, so tell me on that note, what are you having tonight, if anything? Well, yeah, I mean, I told you in the, at the last time that I was uh, not cheating anymore, I was going back to my Hendrix. So I hope you can still hear the jingle. Yeah, clink it around for us. Let's hear that. <laughs> still got the uh, lots of ice and uh, very, very cold Hendrix. Um, I added a little bit of cucumbers and a tonic. So... Not cheating on on Hendrix. Hopefully, you know I'm still waiting for our uh, our crate and and donations. So we'll we'll stand by and wait and see. But um, see how far uh, we get today. <laughs> where's Hendrix made? Because when I heard that somebody from France was listening to our show, I was like, Is Hendrix made in France? Is Hendrix gin made in France? I, it might. I'm not sure, but I, I want to. We need to know this. Does it? Do you know? I thought I did. I don't know where Hendrix is made. I'm going to. Have you to said you first drank it in like Sweden or Switzerland. Yeah, the first time I drank it was when I was in in Europe. It's it, it's definitely there. So as I'm sure as the show gets more popular, we'll we'll probably hear and run into more uh, Hendrix drinkers and get some gin and brother gin brothers. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. I am drinking, and you're going to laugh at me. I'm drinking oh, the Miller God. High Life or a couple Miller High Lives, and uh, it is because. Uh, we, my buddies and I do a, a, every, every third Sunday in January for the last 12 years, we do an event called best day ever, which started <laughs> randomly in Philadelphia at some bar in old city where we, uh, we got to this bar and they said they had Miller high life on special for two fifty or $2 at the time. Okay. And so we drank, uh, we, we made it our mission to drink all the Miller high life in the whole place. <laughs> And so what started with four four guys just messing around, uh, you know, 12 or so years ago has turned into this like, you know, 20 or 30, 30 uh, person event every uh, every year. And uh, we only drink Miller High Life. In fact, somebody showed up once and they like ordered a pint of beer and we were like, dude, uh, like you have to dump that out. And he's like, what? <laughs> it's like, I just paid for it. Like, we don't, you have to dump that out. We only drink Miller High Life. We drink it until the bar has no more. They are now expecting us this one weekend a year, and they're probably like people are like, "Oh, the bar probably loves you." It's like, no, they don't love us. They hate us because <laughs> we're so obnoxious. We make a beer tower with all the empty cans, and we only stop 
once it falls over, we get it like four levels high. We have literally there are science teachers there and, and math teachers who are look like they're looking at the angles. They're creating the base to be as strict as possible. And we get the we get the, the the tower up as high as we can get at the pyramid. People are like coming from all over the bar to take pictures of us with this thing. And so this year was best day ever 12. Unfortunately, it was virtual. But I decided because I wanted to be safe because I'm also a half a maniac to get two 30 packs of Miller Highlight. <laughs> ben, by the way, I, like um, we're quarantining. Nobody's here. So I had two 30 packs of Miller Highlight. Uh, so I am. And of course, I have uh, the overwhelming majority of those beers left. And so I will be drinking okay. Miller Highlight for the foreseeable future. I was wondering how much you had left over. I was a little worried there. Uh, uh, I'm afraid to count, but it's an entire 30 pack plus okay. most of the other ones. Okay. 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 This sounds like uh, an episode of family guy. Like this absolutely sounds like something that they would do on family guy. Best day I think, ever. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. That's really fair. Uh, Lawrence, um, we, uh, and so we know, uh, and this is actually cool because last week when we were uh, doing a show, or the last time one of our shows came out, uh, a former uh, a, a colleague and, and former principal we used to coach texted me a picture. She was listening to the show and had a glass of wine. She texted me a picture with a glass of wine. And so we're sharing that because, hey, awesome, awesome. So, so excited. It's Julie from Julie from Philly. Uh, and th thanks for listening. But we, we know that educators, after a long week, uh, like to decompress in many different ways. Uh, we will often have a drink. And so we invite you to join us as we, uh, as we uh, go through tonight and as we, uh, as we go forward. So, Absolutely. yeah. And so you let's need one with, uh, with our guest today. <laughs> we're going to need one with him. Oh yeah. I could, the stories that we're about to get into <laughs> with this, with this gentleman, total rock star. Um, oh, he yeah. is a former teacher, assistant principal, principal chief academic officer and currently uh currently the director of k-12 or uh, the director of, uh, of academics for insight cyber charter school it's a k-12 school they are they were virtual before we all had to go virtual his name is rashawn reed and he's a good friend and colleague rashawn how are you doing tonight Good evening. I was going to say good morning. I'm used to it from schools, but good evening. <laughs> I'm doing well. How are you? Uh, I'm great. I am, I am great. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much for being here. You are um, st styling as usual. And that's uh, th for those of you who don't know Rashawn, uh, you, you, you better you better bring your A game when you are when you are whatever you're wearing around Rashawn, because he is always, always looking, always looking uh, unbelievably cool. Um, Rashawn, thanks for, uh, thanks for hanging out with us tonight, man. I want to jump right in and we'd just love to hear about, um, about your school and about your role and, and really, because you all are a cyber, a cyber charter school and, uh, you went, vir you know, you, you all are always virtual. What, what advantages, um, do you all have in the, in the virtual instruction realm with, with you know, I, a lot of schools were playing catch up. I imagine you all weren't. And so tell us about. Tell us about your role and about your school, but tell us about those advantages as well. Sure. Well, thanks for having me. I feel like the Beyonce of education, the way you all introduced me. I right? <laughs> start singing or something. Uh, but in all fairness, um, 
So I'm really excited to be here and tell you a little bit about uh, who we are as a school entity and as a company. Um, we, and my role specifically, is I'm all things academics. And so I am directly responsible for the implementation um, of the instructional model that K-12 has designed for the schools that it operates. And so um, I supervise the academic team that is based at the school. Um, I work directly with the principals as their supervisors. I manage the coaching program. Um, and a lot of other stuff. I think one of the things, and I'm a brick and mortar guy, so I'm like you all, I come from uh, being next to children. Uh, so shout out to everybody who's sitting next to a child because it's a little different now. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that I noticed, uh, if I had to think about advantages is being in a virtual world that was virtual or a virtual program that was virtual prior to uh, the pandemic, we're really at a different advantage point. And so when I think about um, what I know from colleagues and peers in the field. Right now, schools are trying to um, figure out the first step. So what are the appropriate platforms we can use? Um, what do they entail? Do they have opportunities for student engagement? Um, how do we assess students uh, through the virtual world? What does testing look like for students with special needs? Um, we've got all those things figured out. And I think right. we're in a different position where we're actually looking towards what's next. Um, and so you'll hear folks talk about different platforms like Blackboard and New Row and uh, things of that nature. And um, we're actually skipping from one to the next. So we're at a point where we're really looking to enhance our, our customer experience. And I think right now, um, schools are just trying to figure out how they can make it seem like school when we were going to a physical building. I think the other advantage is we don't have to worry about a lot of the things that I, I, I brick, miss in brick and mortar. We're not breaking up fights or, you know, tying shoes or having a kid pee pee in the back of the classroom, you know, <laughs> go to the restroom. We don't have to worry about those things. And um, while I miss them, um, they do take up a lot of time. And so mm. I think that's an advantage that we have. Disadvantages are obvious. Uh, it's just a little more difficult to establish relationships with families. And I think um, having been a brick and mortar and worked with students of all ages, relationships are key and it is difficult to do that um, behind the screen. That's really, that's really, um, it's really uh, interesting. When, when everybody went, when, when I first started Skyrocket, one of the first schools uh, with whom we worked was a, um, was a cyber charter school, not not the one you're at now, but a different one. And when the pandemic hit and everything shut down, one of the first folks I reached out to uh, was was one of my colleagues over there and said, because I'd, I'd worked there, so I knew a lot of the platforms and I knew a lot of the engagement techniques, but I was like, let me get a refresh on this. And we actually brought um, brought some people to some different schools to, you know, sure, talk to us, but to talk to school leaders as well. And even something like, and, and for folks, who are are, are are virtual right now, you know, getting kids to write in a chat box is, is one of the ways to engage kids. The problem with that is that if you say, you know, something, I'll use a simple math uh, equation, but if you said something of four plus four, and then the first student writes eight, well, other kids could just all write eight as well. And now we have, we might have 25 students writing in the chat box, but who knows how many actually did the work. And so one of the things that the cyber schools taught me was this thing called waterfall, which is the students type their answers, but they're not prompted to hit enter yet. And so they hit, they're all prompted to hit enter at the same time. And it looks like a waterfall is all the, all the numbers are, are filling up the chat box. And so it's something like that, which brick and mortar schools hadn't thought about. And the cyber folks, you all had, had stuff like that. And by the way, dozens of others, but had that stuff figured out early on. It's like all the kids get to do the work 
you know, in, in that in that particular instance, they get to do the work in that in that way. And if you multiply, you know, that by kind of everything, there there are lots of different advantages that you all that you all have. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, let's um. Well, thanks for the info there. Let's let's talk about just leadership in general because I know you've had a ton of different roles and and lots of different places. What's the most challenging leadership role you've had? And you could talk specifically to like, hey, assistant principal, or it could just be like, hey, an X place. And if you don't want to name the place, that's fine. But like, what made that? What made that role challenging? And I, we're asking this because lots of leaders are, are listening to this show, and folks are, and that's I mean, that's as challenging a role as there is, right? And so like. Tell us about tell us about some of the challenges you had, maybe even how you how you, how you overcame some of them as well. Sure, um, I think I could easily identify it. My my most um, challenging role was when I had the opportunity to serve as um, a turnaround principal in a a really underserved community. Um, and I think uh, the challenge wasn't in the job. I I love being a principal. I love students. Um, I love working in school. So those things, um, you're going to have some challenges, but they are to be expected. Um, I think when it came to transforming a school, one of the challenges that I uh, encountered that I hadn't anticipated was just about community, uh, the the welcomeness or how the community received us is how I would describe it. Um, I, I, if you've ever worked in school transformation, if you're out there, and I know you all that we're speaking with have, um, typically it's a thing that's happening to a community. Mm. Um, it's not necessarily always happening with. Um, I've learned that now years later, but at the time I was just like, a school needs to be turned around. They need a leader. Let's do it. Um, and I never forget going to the school um, and we presented to the parents a lot of the different uh, things we were going to be changing, the uniform, uh, the arrival time, um, the dismissal time. And I remember a parent was really upset in the audience uh, and she was escorted out and I went outside to talk to her outside of the building. And I remember one of the things, uh, we had flags outside of our building, they were gray. Um, and she looked at the gray flags and had our logo on it and she said, what you have to understand is that this community was here long before those gray flags were. Um, and mm -hmm. so you can't do this to us, you have to do this with us. And I think mm -hmm. for me, the perspective and the just the piercing point that she made at that point was like, I'm thinking about uniforms and dismissal times and uh, just the presence of our flag uh, is a burden and is, is a little difficult to swallow for this neighborhood. So we've got to double down and really figure out how we can uh, teach them who's behind the flag. So what are the faces and the people and the personalities? One of the things I decided to do, and it just had been, I've been at the organization for a little while and I had seen strong leaders do it, was walk the neighborhood. And it sounds terrible. I remember the first day that I did it, I spoke to another principal. I was like, we're going to walk the neighborhood. And it was the summertime and we both had on, um, we, we call them chicletters or flip-flops. <laughs> and we walked that neighborhood in our chicletters all day long um and by the end of the day our feet were filthy uh and we were tired and hot and sweaty um but our faces and our personalities that were behind those great flags um had infiltrated the community and the level of resistance that we encountered it, it changed and so um it was a life lesson but that is the work that has been the most difficult for me i've had a lot of opportunities to learn little lessons but my first go round at transforming a school um, I was like, we're in, we're here, what's going on? And uh, that was not the way that it worked out. Rashawn, is there some arrogance attached to that, right? I've experienced that too, this like idea, and I'm generalizing, but this like, hey, 
We're here to like turn a like turn a I'm uh, exactly uh, we're here to turn a bad school into a good school. Everybody should be on board with that, right? And that folks are like, hey, like that like to your point, we were here a lot along like way before that logo or those flags were here. Is there some arrogance around uh, attached to that? Sure. Um, the way that I think I would frame it is that um, oftentimes as educator, and I'll, I'll include myself because I have made mistakes along the way. Um, I don't. I, I think there can be an assumption that um, just because a school isn't thriving, so you may have long, low attendance rates and uh, low academic outcomes and not a lot of parent participation. Um, that doesn't mean that uh, those parents, those community members, shouldn't or don't know what would be best for their children. And I think oftentimes organizations can come in and say, we're here, we see there's a need and we know what's best. Um, and that's that's an assumption. I think even the, the, the worst parent uh, still wants the best for their child. Um, mm -hmm. You just got to find it and tap into that. So there is a little arrogance um, from a, a corporation or a business um, approach. It's like, we know what's best when really the people that live there that breathe that air every day, um, that are there beyond five o'clock when we go home, um, yeah. they know what's best and they can provide input as well. That's great. Absolutely. Rashawn, I know you're the, um, the, the Beyonce of, uh, school and school leadership, <laughs> as Michael pointed out, I'm curious, what do you, what have you seen and what do you think that people are getting right? Um, with schools and, and school leadership, especially as we, you know, get into to 2021. And then, you know, what are they getting wrong? What are some of the things that folks are nailing? And then what are some of the things that are we're still missing? Sure. I, um, it, follow me, in, if you will. Uh, the way that I would frame it, um, I think that folks are getting right um, and getting wrong. Um, buzzwords. Um, in education, okay. there are always buzzwords. Um, I think the new buzzword that people are getting right is around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh -oh. um, I think um, it's a buzzword, right? It's been around for a while, but I think now folks are actually, um, companies and, and organizations are putting meat behind that word. And so um, they're starting to do things like think about professional learning communities. Um, I had one company that looked at salaries across uh barriers or, or lines rather so looking at different individuals and what they make to make sure that there was equity there um so it's a buzzword that's come around but i feel like the the work that needs to happen behind it um is starting to happen uh, what they're getting wrong uh, unfortunately is there are still some buzzwords that to me just don't mean a thing and people are still saying them so <laughs> like what go to schools and they're like i want a student-centered classroom like that sounds great what does that mean um, and how do we unpack that? And like, what does it look like? They're like, well, you know, teachers should let the kids do the talking. That's great. There should be student participation. But like, I don't know that I would frame that as yeah. like a student centered classroom. Um, and so I think that some folks are relying on um, some old buzzwords um, simply because it's what you do. Words come and go in education and people are still talking about like student centered classrooms. Yeah. And that ain't the thing. Like we need to be talking about diversity, equity, inclusion. We need to be talking about teacher practice. We need to be talking about like lesson plan development and coaching. There's a bunch of things that we can talk about, but like students in the classrooms, it yeah. ain't it. Like, cause you can't really put a lot of work behind that. Michael, that sounds like one of our uh, podcasts. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're definitely, uh, you're, you're, you're preaching to the choir here with that. I'll, I'll tell you, years ago, I was in a, a classroom. Uh, the school was, according to them, making a shift from, 
direct instruction, the direct instruction model to uh, student-centered. What, what, I, what I revealed for them, which they weren't too happy to hear, was that what they were calling direct instruction actually wasn't instruction at all. It was lecture. And so right. kids weren't actually learning any. They were just like taking notes or not. But it wasn't direct instruction. But they wanted to leap. And I really, re I really call it a leap. They wanted to leap from lecture to student-centered and not, and, not and not support teachers around becoming really effective teachers of content and teachers of skills. And so this is, and this is true. The student-centered, the first student-centered lesson I saw was uh, kids in groups of five working on a review sheet for content they'd already been taught, and they were filling in the answers. It was, they, they just had, it just, they mem they'd had it memorized, and they were filling in a worksheet, and it was, you know, what is, it was actually a Spanish class. It was like, what does this word mean in English? And kids were writing the words in. And the first group I sat with was a group of five and one kid's doing all the work, right? And two other kids- hey, Student-centered. Student-centered, right? And one <laughs> and two other kids are just, you know, chilling and talking to each other. And then, you know, two other kids, you know, one's uh, taking a nap and the other one's like whatever, looking at his phone. And it was, I'm not trying to beat up on, on those folks because I, I know that they were well-intentioned, but to your point, it's- Oh, this is student centered. Student centered. It's not. It's the total bullshit. This is yeah. kids in a. This is like let's put kids in a group because like I saw it on a blog or or you know I read I read an article about it. Or I went to a PD, but it's not actually being done well. Yeah, and it sounds good, right? I mean, who doesn't want to be in a conversation? Like at my school, we have student centered instruction. You know, it sounds like the the conversation piece that keeps you in the game when really like. Yeah, I'm just watching poor instruction. I think it's more of a concept than an actual thing. And, and people run to concepts because they sound and feel good and they make you inclusive. So you're part of the team, you're doing the right things by kids. It's like having a conversation and you're like, well, the children need, no one's gonna question you because you're talking about the kids. But it'd be, to your point, like, isn't that like, I mean, you, you hear people, we hear it in our lives, are people like, I'm spiritual. Well, what does that mean? That's right. That's right. <laughs> Find that for okay. me right now, define it. Oh, you can't? Oh, because it's just some it's just some buzzword that you just That's say, right. right? It sounds good. You know, I'm a spiritual person. I'm not religious. I'm very spiritual. <laughs> what does that mean? What does that mean? <laughs> yeah. All right, we're gonna shift gears a little bit, and uh, I am I'm, I'm I'm I can't believe I forgot this. We I forgot to ask you if you're having a drink. Are you having a drink tonight? Yeah, so I'm doing the the college roadie. It's a it's a water bottle, but it's got a little something special. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> Wait a the minute. water. And you pour it out and then you figure out what you want to pour in. And then people will think you're drinking water. You know, I wasn't sure if we, and it was hot. <laughs> Just in case there's a video, I'm drinking Crystal Geyser. That's what I'm drinking. <laughs> a little bit of something else in it. Rashad, I have so many or the road. Where are you going? You ain't yeah, going? You're not going anywhere. It's Friday. Y'all kidding me? <laughs> Listen. Oh, All right, Antonio the... was tipsy after the last one. I hope I am as well. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, there's a flaw in your in your plan, which is that you just told us what you're drinking, so you have the roadie, <laughs> so nobody would see it. But then you were totally willing to tell us that you're having a drink. So that's the, that's the, you, you've given away you've given away your secret, man. Yeah, they don't know what's in it though. Just know that it's clear and it looks like Crystal Geyser. <laughs> we, we uh and so i'm gonna ask you you're so you're from new york and uh you made really made a name for yourself in, in education in philly and now uh and you 
worked in Atlanta and really all over the all over the East Coast. And so, where uh, I mean, where do you consider where do you consider home? And and really, what are the differences? I mean, I know you've been a lot of places, but what are some differences between New York, Philly, and 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 Atlanta? Yeah, um, I consider Philly home. I had this conversation yesterday, and so um, you, all, I'm sure, I hope everyone in the world is listening has seen the Bernie Sanders meme where he's like sitting in the chair <laughs> at the inauguration. He's got his mitts mittens on, um, and so it's been hilarious. And um, someone showed me a picture of Bernie Sanders sitting in a parking space that had been shoveled out. Um, and if you're from Philly, you know the yeah. importance of once you shovel that space, you're going to put anything in that there. Right? That's right. So, uh, someone asked me, they're like, do you do you do this? I said, absolutely. I've earned my Philadelphia roots. Oh, um, so Philly's home for me. Um, it's where my heart is. I own a home there. And just being back in the city um, every time I get an opportunity to, it's really refreshing. It's familiar. I, I hit Philadelphia at 17. And, you know, I just remember being dropped off on Broad Street and, uh, and seeing my parents leave and being like, oh, this is it. Um, you know, I think what I learned along the way, and if I had to make a comparison and, um, why I love Philly so much is that Philly's a gritty city. And, and if you go along the Northeast corridor, New York, I've worked in Bridgeport, Connecticut, um, they are tough places. And I think, um, what I've learned in terms of what my skill set is and my, my impact is that's where it's at. It's working with some of the most challenging students, um, yeah. working with the students without a voice, working with students who um, may not be excelling. I, it reminds me of working in Philly and um, I took a student into my building. If you work in a turnaround school, uh, they'll send you, you back students who weren't there. And I never forget, I got a student from a disciplinary program and he just kind of looked at me at the door and I kind of looked at him and I said, let's give this a shot. And he walked in and he became one of my best students. Um, but it, it was because I knew when I was looking him at, at that door, I was like, okay, you have to take a different approach and really focus on the relationship and forget about all these other things that everybody's worried about. Um, there are a lot more opportunities in the Northeast to engage with students who have a story. And I think that for me, it's refreshing. Um, I have a story and so I like to relate to them. Uh, the South is great. Let me tell you something. You're going to hear yes, sir, and please, ma'am. So if you're into manners, it's wonderful. Um, when I think about some of the disadvantages of being in the South, and, and I've been a charter guy for all of my life, uh, the charter school world down there is uh, not as developed. And so uh, what was the what were we talking about last year? Oh, I remember. So I, I, when I was a principal, as a turnaround principal, we had like organizational goals. Um, I remember one year, you may remember, it was joy was like, we're focused on joy this year. I didn't really know what, I was saying, I didn't really know what it mean, meant and like, we didn't really do anything, but like joy was buzzword. Um, so we focused on joy and that probably was in like 2012. And then I moved down South in like 2018 and I was a principal and I'm like, all right, what's our focus area? It's like, we're focusing on joy. <laughs> like, okay, all right. Uh, and it was just the same thing that I had experienced six years ago. Um, but when I thought about the people that I worked with, it was great, edu phenomenal educators. Uh, that's just where they were in terms of their development. And so I had to jump in and jump for joy. Uh, and it was an okay thing. I think the other piece about uh, that was a very different, but a, in a good way for me personally, going to 
the South. I walked into uh, my school in Atlanta and there were 18 principals um, and every single one of them were people of color. Um, and I was used to something very different. I was used to walking in and being a minority in the group um, and being comfortable because that's what it looked like when I was an education major. I was an elementary ed major. Mm. It was me and this guy, Anthony. We were like friends throughout the four years. There were no other brothers in the program. Um, and so it was good to see others that um, looked like me, that had the experience. It just was kind of made me step up a little bit and be like, whoa, I'm really amongst my own people now. Like, what do I got to mm. do here? Um, <laughs> You know, so it has its advantages and disadvantages. I think, though, again, I'm just, if you want to hear please and thank you, move to the <laughs> Thank you. So, Rashawn, what is there to do in uh, in A-Town? What, what's, what's going on in the, in the Big Peach? Where, where's the, where are the places to eat and, and drink and hang out? Where, where are the spots to go? You know, I have no clue, uh, but I do know who you should <laughs> Who you should go there with? You should go there with me wherever the place is. Like, have a good time. So, so are you inviting really... all of our listeners to to meet up with you in Atlanta? Yes, but they will have to find me through Airbnb. My house is <laughs> as a reservation, so uh, if they need the, the the link, just let me know. I rent it out. They have a whole top. They can come in <laughs> the bathroom. But I don't know where the place is to eat. Listen, I'm a slim guy. Um, so eating, I'm like, I don't know. I usually drink my dinner. Um, but <laughs> in terms of who you should be with in Atlanta, I can tell you you should be hanging out with me because I'm, I'm just a good time, you know? So when you're in Philly, <laughs> when, you, when you're in Philly where, where are some places uh, folks oh, to go? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, before uh, the pandemic and um, back when my liver could handle it um, and hangovers weren't all day. Um, I love to go uh, to Northern Liberty. So you could catch me in like Johnny Brenda's uh, at any given time. I like to follow a lot of, um, there's a girl named Fly Girl um, and they throw a lot of different, mm, I, I call them like upbeat parties. And so they do cover parties where uh, one night it was like Philly loves Michael Jackson and they played all these different mixes of Michael Jackson. Oh, yeah. Nice. yeah, and it just was phenomenal. Um, so I like, uh, I like a low key, kind of dark, dirty floor, maybe has a bathroom, maybe doesn't, you know, <laughs> no, uh, drinks are definitely available for under $5. You know, the Long Island tea tastes like it was made in like Jersey. Like that's the kind of place that I like to hang out in Philly. Um, you know, I used to go to Matt Max a lot when I lived in University City before they priced everybody out. So, um, you know, I've got plenty of places in Philly, but in, if I'm in Philly, it's gonna be something <laughs> underground. Um, Atlanta's a little classy too. That's the other, maybe that's why I don't go out. Cause I'm like, I don't have time to be like, you all see the shows pretending to be fancy, you know, <laughs> I'm just not into that. Like, give me a dark bar, great music, a stiff drink and like a $5 cover. I'm there all night. That means you were raised in Long Island. Well, what we did is we sought dark bars <laughs> five dollar covers because that's my we weren't finding those out here I, I say long island is great for little children and old people um no one in between really and so if you're not one of those two you typically run to the city and that's why i tell you i'm a good time now if you want to know where to go in new york I will just bring a train ticket and we will have fun <laughs> all right there's so much to unpack here not the least of which is you're our second straight guest to just invite our listeners to hang out with you or come to your house and, and party with you, which uh, Clintel from uh, Liberated did as well. And then I just want to be clear. So a good place in Philly 
is a place that may or may not have a bathroom and where the Long Island iced teas taste like they were made in New Jersey. Is that accurate? That is. You should sip it and go, ooh. Like that, that, that should be your reaction when you sip it. It shouldn't be brown. Like, you know, it's supposed to be, but it shouldn't. You'd be like, why isn't this brown? Like, that is the kind of drink. Because you're not going to need a lot, you know. I, I grew up in Philly where, you know, in my 20s, you, woke, you had one shoe on and you were just like, it was a good time last night, right? You know, that's where I would be. You could catch me in Philly. Hey, listen, we, uh, we used to, so... Rashawn, you mentioned working up in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and we used to actually work there together sometimes. And so we would often find ourselves on a train home back when Philly was your home and my home as well. And uh, we would find ourselves on a three hour train ride home from Connecticut. Uh, and especially if it was on a Friday, which it often was. And uh, we'd kind of give each other a look right about 10 minutes after we left Bridgeport. And We'd hit that bar car, and I'll tell you, three hours on the train <laughs> with the two of us, we'd get to 30th Street Station back in that street, back in Philadelphia. What'd you say? Stumbling. <laughs> Stumbling. Woo! Is that Club Amtrak? Club Amtrak? <laughs> Club Amtrak. And uh, and drinking those, uh, drinking the, the beers. Uh, I forget the brand they had on there. Some Stone something. Yeah. Uh, we'd drink the Bud Lights or something like that, and they'd have the little Finlandia vodkas, and we'd be crushing those after a long week, telling each other our our, uh, our hopes and dreams and our <laughs> trials and tribulations. Imagine intentionally sitting in first class because the drinks are free. That was us. Like, <laughs> yeah. first class ticket, you can drink for free. Like, okay, great. And then, you know, the people come up to you, like, I'll take two. And two. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you start with that and then they come back. They're like, you want more, one more, please? You know, and then you, you buy from there. <laughs> Well, this, those are some of the best times too, um, and uh, and I'm glad we're going to take your tips on on finding the places in Philly with uh, with no bathrooms, a five dollar cover, trying uh, <laughs> try and have one shoe one shoe on the next day. We want to let's switch gears a little bit. You talked a lot. We talked about buzzwords. I think we agree. You you mentioned joy earlier. We actually Antonio and I talked in a recent a recent episode around a, about a school that actually defined joy right you talk about like we want to have a joyous school but like folks don't actually do anything about it we talked about a school that defined it which we think is and then trained on it and then tracked data around it are these joy indicators being met it's really i think uh uh you know a rarity in uh, in education probably in, in the workplace in general and so one of the buzzwords that we hear about all the time is autonomy right we hear people say we want to give teachers autonomy we want to give leaders autonomy oh I've I've mostly uh, when when we um, work with schools, we find that autonomy means um, we just we just we're afraid to tell people what to do, and we're we're afraid that they're going to be angry with us, um, and so we're going to say that we want to give people autonomy, uh, but it's actually not not a real thing. And I'd love to hear your thoughts there. I mean, that's a, you've worked in a million schools, and you know you know everybody in, in education. I mean, is is autonomy a good thing? Is it a is it a real thing? Is it a fake thing? Should we be pushing for that in schools? Or should we say, hey, if somebody's doing really something awesome in school X, schools Y and Z should do it as well. And that and that we should all we should all uh, try and make things as uniform as possible. Oh, yes, this is a great, great question. Um, so I agree with you 100 percent that autonomy means let people do whatever they want to do. Um, and it usually is associated with low accountability. Um, yeah. And it could come from uh, uh, several reasons. It's it's actually an issue um, for me that 
the word autonomy doesn't make sense when I think about some of the leadership books that I've read over the years. Um, and so if you haven't ever had an opportunity to read, uh, it's okay to be the boss. And there's a little, a little section in it and it says, tell people what to do and how to do it. Yeah. And it's just that clear, right? If you think about yourself as a leader and a manager, not defining expectations, allowing people to sort of like wander the road, everyone's going to end up at a different place, Amen. right? And then as a leader, it's going to be your job to like drive down the road and make pit stops to pick people up and then take them to the right destination. You know, that's what autonomy gets you. I think um, the way that you implement autonomy within buildings, uh, the first thing I, I believe in doing is establishing expectations, right? So here's the the breaks and here's what you have to do and here's what we're expecting of you the next thing you do is you monitor so let me see you do those things let me see how consistent and um how much fidelity you're sticking to when it comes to implementation and once i see that you're meeting my expectations within those that have been those parameters that have been established yeah there's some autonomy so i'll give you an example you know lesson plans are due every friday and you're a teacher and you're rocking it and you're plans are always on time and you've got great student outcomes, maybe I'll give you some autonomy on when you turn in your lesson plans, right? But, but you've but, earned that. You've demonstrated something that says, I can count on you to not let me down. I don't know that uh, leaders should have that confidence at the beginning of a school year, of any school year, um, because things change. And I think you should really start with expectations and then give or take, you know, as people show and prove, maybe you increase some autonomy, but the expectation should be general and, and the same for everyone. You know, it's, I, I worked with a, I, it's a great, great points. So I worked with a principal manager years ago who uh, would, would always preach autonomy. And uh, when, when when I started to dig in, uh, his principles were doing whatever whatever the heck they wanted, uh, and not in the way you're talking about of like the rock star who uh, who who you know has some special considerations, which I totally agree with. Uh, and uh, and you know, but as teachers, right? I mean, I imagine when when you guys were teachers, and we never talked about this, but I could go to my principal at the time, and be like, hey, I have a, I have a, I have a cool, really cool idea for a lesson. I want to totally divert from the from the curriculum for for three days. Uh, we did this whole thing at what we we dissected the JFK assassination from from top down. We 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 had theories on. We wrote like we were journalists and we wrote our our, our papers around uh, who actually did it. We looked at all the evidence and we had uh, kids working together to, to to write their like newspaper articles and and my, that wasn't in any curriculum. But I was like, this would be really cool. It was like you know, the anniversary of, of his, of his, uh, of his death. And that, and so, and so I, I asked, I asked my principals, Hey, is this cool? And they were like all on board. And so we're, we're totally aligned there, but, but get, getting back to, and I imagine you all had, had similar experiences mm -hmm. get, get, getting back to this, you know, this chief academic officer, everybody was doing their own thing. And, uh, and, and, you know, principal manager rather. And, um, and the idea like, Oh, well, I believe in autonomy and it just, it never rang true for me. It always, felt like I am just, I don't want to tell them what to do because they're going to be, and you, you mentioned it's okay to be the boss by Bruce Tulgan. Patrick Lencioni has a great book called The Advantage, which I know you both have, have read. And Lencioni says, you know, um, people say that they're, like, managers say that they're afraid uh, of making their employees feel X or Y way, when what in reality, they are afraid of how they'll feel if their employees are angry with them or frustrated, right? Mm -hmm. And so when I hear autonomy in education, mm -hmm. I just, 
I just don't get it because so much of the work that we have to do, and, and Vance, I'd love you to weigh in on this too. Like so much of the work we have to do when we start working with a school district or network is like, okay, like, so everybody's using a different curriculum, right? Like yeah. everybody has a different start and end time and everybody has PD on different days. Like how do you all align across the schools? How do, what's the people manage these principles? How do they provide aligned feedback if everybody's doing, doing different stuff? And so Vance, have you seen that playing out at all? And no, uh, obviously skyrocket, but before that yeah. as well. No, it's funny. I, and Rashawn, I wanted to, to loop you in on this. Like just today I was, uh, you know, speaking with a leader who, um, in the past, um, and they also listen, will be listening to the podcast, and I would love to, for you to give them some advice. Um, in the past, their teachers had been um, autonomous. They, they, they had made their own lessons. Um, they aligned their own objectives. They created their own um, sort of work. And this year, um, and starting next year, they are going to go to um, a much more uh, concrete lesson plan. And it's not necessarily scripted, but they're using a curriculum that they want to be followed. And I'm curious, um, you know, I, I, I certainly gave them some advice and some coaching, but they're worried about the pushback that they're going to get from their teachers from going from having autonomy to create uh, their, their own lessons. And, you know, working with, you know, I've worked with you several times. And one of the things that you, um, that you are famously quoted for is, you know, you're not a curriculum writer, right? And I, I'm curious, what what advice would you give that school leader as as they are transitioning their teachers from, you know, being autonomous and making their own lessons and creating their own lesson plans yeah. and from scratch to now using something that is much more concrete? Uh, what advice would you give that school leader? Hopefully, um, we're aligned. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've got a few pieces of advice for them. Um, what do you got? I think the first thing I will say, um, and just being a leader at any level, manager, principal, um, the boss of someone, it's a lonely island. Um, and you, you're going to make some enemies along the way. Not genuine enemies, but people just, they're going to find a reason to not like you. Um, and you got to be okay with that um, because it's not personal. And if your plan is... I'm centered in what's best for students. You got to move forward with your plans, even if there's a little discomfort there. Um, I think the second piece about it is uh, to be mindful. Um, here's an unpopular opinion, but this is just who I am. Um, I, I, I am from the, the, the school or old school enough, if you will, um, that I just believe if the job is asking you to do X, you do X. If not, you find a job where you can do whatever it is that you enjoy doing. Um, and so if the leader of the organization has said, this is the direction we need to go for children, um, I am from and at an age where there should be minimal questions. There should be questions in terms of implementation, but you shouldn't be questioning, is this the thing? That person is sitting in that seat for a reason. I mean, you've got to give them the, the confidence and support um, because it is a scary role. Um, and I think the last part, and it goes back to what I always say, listen, the people that write curriculum got PhDs and literacy <laughs> and science. That ain't us, all right? I'm great. <laughs> I can do a lot of things, but I don't want to be the curriculum writer. In fact, I would prefer you, when I was a teacher, hand me this, and you know where sometimes they have the script where it's like, black is what you need to read, red is what you say to the students. Yeah. Like, yeah, give me that. Like, give me that. I don't, 
I don't need to like make my lessons from scratch and like, I really know the standards and the power standards. Those are also buzzwords, uh, you know, because it just, it makes it seem as if you're stronger than Dr. Whoever who wrote the, you know, the textbook for, you know, Pat McMillan, like, uh, come on, like, let's leave the experts up to their expertise and let's us go focus on running schools. There's a reason those people aren't running schools and aren't looking to run schools anymore if they were once running schools. So now if a job is saying it's X, it's X. And the people that do not want to move in that direction, my last piece of advice would be it's a mindset issue and you should double down Mm -hmm. and see if they should stick around long term. Absolutely. You know, Rashawn, I'm thinking, you know, I've, 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 there are lots of quotes that I would love to, to, to quote you on uh, that, that I've learned from you. I'm going to start charging <laughs> y'all. Listen. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to charge me for your quotes. Look, so one of our mind, one of our mindsets here at, um, at Skyrocket is walk toward the pain, which is something that I know uh, that you know about. It's having that, that mm-hmm. difficult conversation. It's when you see BS, you just call it out. It's when you're walking through your building, you see that classroom and you're like, oh my God, I do not even want to open that door because I know all of the hell that's breaking out in there. Um, but you know that you got to walk into that room. Um, you are the, you, 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 you're the boss of that. You really excel at this. Um, what is it about you that, that gives you that, that, that power to do that? Are you like, are you uncomfortable? Um, how and how do we get folks that are sort of worried about that to to power through anyway and just like say you know what I I gotta walk into this classroom I gotta walk towards that pain. I love that walk to. I'm gonna steal that one and add it to my book. All I'm right, gonna charge you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think I'll be right yet. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I love that walk towards the pain. And um, and you all know me. You know that's my thing. Like I want to be in the fire. Um. It, conceptually, the way that I think um, I could explain the importance of it is um, for every leader, and we've all been there, it, whether it's that teacher that you don't want to reprimand or the difficult student or the parent that you've been avoiding because you just don't know how the conversation's going to go this time. Um, you do need to walk towards the pain. Absolutely. Um, I think you got to remember two things. Um, one, and they're kind of related, uh, it's going to be a long walk, so it's going to feel heavy. All right, where you're like, oh God, I don't wanna have to do this. Um, But I think the second thing you've gotta remember is that um, part of life is about making long walks, right? And so it's gonna feel like a long walk, but once that walk is over, you can literally be like, wow, just walk two miles and it feels good, right? So if you think about what you can say to yourself afterwards, you don't have to worry about that um, anxiety and that pain. That would what, that's what I always would focus on. And a lot of times I would almost replay the, the painful points for myself or for a colleague afterwards. So if it was yeah. reprimanding a teacher, I'd sit down and talk to a colleague, but like, and I said this, and I also said this, and it made me feel this way, right? Just because you have to reinforce for yourself, you did the right thing, right? And so walk towards that pain and know that at the end of it, you're gonna be able to coach yourself up and pat yourself on the back for the, the best reasons. Absolutely. I mean, there's so much of this stuff. <clears throat> I am, uh, I am, I am, like, uh, re- like obsessed with the idea of fear and how fear influences people. I, I, as a teenager, I suffered from terrible panic attacks and uh, fear was a part of my life 
very, very early on. And it, it's uh, honestly, I mean, it, so many of the decisions I made as a, as a teen and beyond were, were based on fear and what is going to happen if I do, I do X. One of the reasons I'm convinced why I have a job where my whole job is to stand in front of rooms full of people, sometimes hundreds of people, and talk to them is because I'm constantly challenging myself to overcome different different fears, uh, and and I don't ever want to get I don't ever want to become come stagnant. And that's not to say, and by the way, that's one area, and there's still lots of other places where fear is a, a major. Where, where I'm thinking about the fear all the time is so much of this stuff. Fear, like fear. We talked about autonomy a moment ago. Fear of fear of of how I'm going to be received, you, Antonio. You talked about fear of pushback from teachers, right. fear of how that conversation's going to go, fear of how uh, how I'm going to feel afterward. I mean, it's is so much of. I mean, we we've, we've seen it. You have teachers like I don't want anybody to come into my classroom. What like why? Like that th- that's fear. There, I don't want to have that hard conversation. That's fear. I mean, it's so much of what we're all doing on a daily basis, just based in being afraid. I, I would, I'd agree. And I'll tell you a, a, a short story. I, I was a first grade teacher my first year um, out of college uh, and I had a great mentor. I hope she's still around, Brenda Hamilton. Uh, and so Miss um, Hamilton used to come and like, I had it. I'm just gonna tell you, I had it as a teacher. I was like, the right stuff. I was teacher of the year the first year, right? <laughs> out the gate. Um, but I had fears and I never forget. She sat me down and she said, uh, Mr. Reed, what are you afraid of? Um, and it was just she and I, and I looked at her and I said, um, it was like the first month I said, to be honest, I'm worried that there's going to be a first grader in the future walking around, not knowing how to read because I didn't teach reading. Yeah. That was my fear. And you have to create, uh, spaces either for yourself, um, with someone, or if you're leading others. You got to create a space for people to be able to share those genuine moments of fear that they have um, or those genuine moments of uncertainty that they have and know that that they're going to be received. So for me at the time, I had been thinking that since I was in uh, teacher training where I was like, oh, God, I don't know how to teach reading. And then I was reading my manuals and I'm like, "Okay, I think these are the things. Um, but then once I communicated it to a veteran educator, she's like, oh, don't worry about that here. Let me show you. And like, we were able to overcome that fear. And I was teacher of the year first year. So fear is a big part of this game, but you got to think about it. We're educators, right? So imagine what it sounds like. It's not like, all right, I'll give you the best, best example. It's like being a doctor. Imagine me like you're an ineffective educator or you're an ineffective doctor. Like that just sounds awful because you know that the impact that you've had on somebody is severe. So I think that's where the fear comes from. Rashawn, I want to lift up something that you said earlier, um, which was um, just the importance of rooting what you're doing when you do have to walk towards the pain in something that's like super tangible. So I, I mean, I can think about the times where I was walking past the classroom and I was like, I don't want to go in there or that there was a, as you just mentioned, an ineffective teacher where like, this isn't going to work. And there was fear, but I think that I want to lift up what you said, which was, what are you rooting it in? And mm-hmm. so when I say I have to go into this classroom because it's not right for the, it's not fair for the students. It's not equitable for the students I serve this teacher, unfortunately, or this leader or this person that that is that works for me 
can't be here because I'm root I'm rooting it in what is best for students. So I, I think that was like that that helped me as a school leader through that fear. And when I put them both on a scale, you know, what was best for kids outweighed all of that, um, that that fear. So I just I wanted to lift that up because I think that that was that that was a great nugget for folks to think about when they, when you put it on the scale, what's more important that that fear thing that you that you have or, you know, rooting it in what, what's most important. Absolutely. It's, it's the students. It's, it's, it's why they're here. You know, I, I'd never forget, a, you got to think about, they pay the bills, they pay us. All right. And <laughs> <Yeah>. so like, <laughs> if we're not thinking about what's best for them, uh, wh- why are we here? We wouldn't be here uh, without them. And I think uh, it, oh, there, I could tell stories, but I think it's a little, um, what's the right word I want to use? Um, presumptuous maybe is the word. Um, for folks to think that you can sort of minimize the importance of students in a school building. They're literally why the lights are on. They're per pupil, you know, when you whittle it down. So like, you really have to almost be thankful that students have created an opportunity um, for you to show who you are and what you can do as an educator. And if you feel like you're being given an opportunity from the students and families, I feel like you're going to just center yourself and be like, okay, I'm here because these folks wanted me. So like, let me make it great in here for them. Right. That, but that was the leader I am was, and I would recommend people to be, um, you have to really create a space where folks want more, whether it's the students, the teachers, the community, and the best way to do that is to know that you you've been given an opportunity by that community and those students and just show them that like it was worth it. They made the right choice. That's the best way I can describe it. That's a, a great a great point. I'll, I'll I'll add too, and if you all have different thoughts, let me know. But we see folks more able to walk toward the pain and have the tough conversation when they've set hyper clear expectations at the front of the year or the month or the what like that say this is how we operate here um, and this is what we're going to do and these are our values and here's our vision. And here's and so I want you know I was uh, went back to my teacher days I, I I was getting kids to to line up in front of my class so they could come into the classroom so I could hand them their do now as they walked mm-hmm. in and I raised my voice and my principal I got the students into the class and my principal pulled me aside he goes I, I want to remind you we don't raise our voice to students here we're creating a safe environment use some other language and uh, he was they, they, that was clearly articulated to me in advance I knew that. I'd had a moment where I'd, I'd lost my patience. Um, I, if that, if that same conversation had happened, even though it's, let's agree that that's objectively right, that we shouldn't raise our voice to uh-huh. kids. But if that same conversation had happened, and I hadn't already been told that, and I hadn't agreed, right? I agreed to work here. As you, to your point, find a different job if you don't like it. Um, I agreed to work here, and I agreed to that, and also dozens and dozens of other things. I might have responded differently. I might said, my boss is a jerk. How dare, how dare they call me out in front of, well, it wasn't in front of anybody, but how dare they pull me aside right as my kids like, but instead I was like, yep, you're right. Um, I agreed to that. And and so we often see, you know, the, the, the difficult conversation is is not the is not the starting point. That's the actually the end point. Because I've already said, hey, we don't we don't raise our voice at kids here. Or, hey, we don't gossip about each other here. Or hey, we're on time to school. Or hey, we, we you know we lesson we have our lesson plans in by five p.m. on Thursday or whatever it is. And so then the conversation that follows is much easier to have 
because it's more it's less like hey you messed up and more like hey i want to talk about why the thing we agreed to is not happening um and it, it, it's it's an easier conversation to have i mean does that resonate with you all oh it listen it hits it on the head if you want folks to to sort of do what you need them to do you hit it michael establish those clear expectations and then the second piece is follow up on them and let me tell i'll give a little a, a golden nugget on what i used to do right <laughs> so like i if you've ever been a leader tracking down lesson plans can like be the bane of your existence or you're like hey lesson plans are due on friday and then it's friday and you're like sitting and waiting and waiting and waiting <laughs> just waiting all right so I, I got to a point where what i started doing was just let's say we had a teacher meeting in the beginning of the year lesson plans are due on friday um and then i would send out my reminder on friday to the whole staff and what i would do for myself would put a reminder on my calendar for friday to remind folks about what my expectation was so i'd walk in on monday at 8 a.m you know how you manage your calendar i'm reading my little calendar it says send email to teachers to remind them about lesson plans <laughs> and I bet you my, you know, the amount of people who met the expectation, it increased, but I had to get myself, give myself a mechanism to do what your principal did, which was constantly remind folks about the expectation that had been established previously. Then it's not personal. Uh, you know, people walk into church and they get quiet because they know the expectation. Yeah. Right? It's not a personal thing. You see the entity or the building and you know when I'm in here, I have to hold myself a certain way or I'm going to have a certain experience. As a leader, you can create that. Folks walked into my building and knew you were going to do what you needed to do. Um, you were going to support children and you're going to have a good time. So I'm going to tell you a joke or two. I'm going to get you a prize if you're hungry. I'll buy you lunch. But like, you're gonna do what you need to do because that's the expectation. So it's really on leaders to create that um, automaticity uh, to get folks to do what they need to do. And it's funny too, we'll, we'll transition to another question in a moment, but it's really funny. We talked about, we started this conversation a little while ago around autonomy, right? And if we give folks too much autonomy, especially if it's not authentic, but it's more because I'm afraid to tell people what to do. And now folks are doing whatever the heck they want but now I'm uncomfortable to have the, 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 I'm uncomfortable to walk toward the pain because I haven't really set the expectations. So it's gonna come across, unlike my, my old boss with me around, you know, my volume of my voice with kids, but it's gonna come across as being totally random. Hey, like all of a sudden, I'm not, all of a sudden I'm not allowed to complain loudly about students in the break room. Well, actually, you probably never should have been doing that, but you've right. been, and I've been letting you because I've been, and so it, it could lead to this real, real kind of vicious, vicious cycle, which is, uh, which is, is kind of crazy. Um, friends, let's, the, you know, uh, Antonio and I have talked about this many times. We've even had DEI experts on the, on the program, and, and Rashawn, you talked about DEI earlier. You referred to it, I believe, as like a buzzword, but like one of the good kinds. Of buzzwords. Um, it's one of my fears with DEI is that it, it just is a buzzword in many places uh, and that it's not actually something that folks aren't actually committed to uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion work, but more that they feel they have to say, particularly after this last summer, they have to say they're committed to it, but that it's almost this like token thing. Uh, that's like talked about once every couple months. Right. Uh, we'll do a reading, right. uh, but really we're not actually creating more equitable schools for kids. And so uh, sounds like you think DEI is the right move, but um, what, what, if so, like what are, what are schools missing when it comes to this? And, and can it just be a, 
a, a token thing that people are doing that's actually not going to move the needle at all. Oh my gosh, this is so relevant. Um, it's what we're going through right now as a school. Um, and we're partnered with a, a phenomenal organization that does DEI work. Um, and one of the things that I recognized in coming in was um, one, there was the need. Uh, our, the majority of our teachers are white women. Um, and so when I just think about uh, the voices that are missing from the table, um, there are a lot. Um, so we, we knew we needed to do it. Um, and we brought it in and I was a little worried, like this is kind of a buzzword. Um, here's what I've noticed. Um, if you want it to be more than a buzzword, um, when resistance develops, um, you gotta keep going. Um, and so I'll talk about our schools, particularly there with anything, there was a time where we had like our first PD and then our second. And if you're really partnered with folks who are effective, you're doing some hard work in those sessions, right? Mm, you're yeah. you're tapping into some um, tough places. And I remember reading the survey data uh, and uh, one of the teachers said that uh, after participating in it, she felt as though we were white shaming and she was not able to go on um, throughout her day. And she doesn't feel like this was necessary. Um, and I listened to it and definitely had a conversation with her and I let her know we were continuing um, because that is part of this work, um, making spaces more diverse, more equitable, more inclusive can be uncomfortable and oftentimes should be. And so I'll listen to you. Um, I'll definitely make you feel acknowledged and see what I can do to support you. But when resistance develops around uh, that topic, you keep going. Um, I have staff members, we had to do a survey because I got another email where a staff member was like, I don't know that the entire staff would really feel that this is the thing that we need. I was like, okay, I'm gonna survey everybody. Yeah. Did my survey, folks liked it. So I was like, hey, we're still, still going. You know what I mean? And then if my data had not been really supportive, what I had to prior to that was I reached out to the board and I asked them what was their level of commitment. Um, and they said they wanted to keep going. So no matter the data, um, it was a thing. So you just have to have that commitment from everyone uh, to take it from buzzword to actual, like, this is what we're expecting you to do with this. Um, and you have to be partnered with the right place. And so one of the pieces of feedback that we, we got and we made a, a shift, I thought it was like, great feedback. Um, Teachers were loving the content, but they wanted more resources on how to implement these things in the classroom. So I'm like, oh, great, we can we can shift the arc of training. Uh, we can totally do that and go deeper. Um, it was great, but that's not resistance. That's encouragement. Um, when you encounter resistance, you keep going. Right. Rashawn, you know, I was thinking um, as I'm, you know, finishing up my drink, you know, I haven't heard a report from everybody else about where they are with their drink, but I'll update. In true Brody fashion, it's gone before you get there, okay? <laughs> it's gone before you are get you there. Are you finishing okay. in the line at the party and then throw it on the floor? <laughs> the one where you lose your shoe, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with the no um, bathroom. Yeah. Um, I've got, I'm on uh, Miller Lite number three. Number three. Uh, okay. Which is... Uh, is different than the chalice of bourbon I had on our last show. <laughs> right, you had. A <laughs> uh, I poured some red wine and it tasted like it was six dollars ninety nine cents red wine and uh, it tasted like uh, rubbing alcohol. And so then I poured a, a like a. I mean, it was like a, <laughs> I don't know. It was, it was like twenty twenty five ounces of uh, twenty five ounce glass, but Michael, uh, I told not, you this. Not, not totally filled, of course. Stop talking about the six ninety nine wine. 
Like we, we we're not going to continue to announce. This Takes me back to my now. Italy days. I woke up at the bus stop for when I was drinking six ninety nine wine. <laughs> oh my God! Did you, you get on the next over. bus that came by? I was bus? waiting. So I think I was waiting for the bus and fell asleep. And I was a resident assistant at the time. And shout out to Monica, wherever you are in the world. Monica <laughs> found me and she just walked me back to my apartment and just put me in the bed. See, six ninety nine wine. Six ninety nine like, wine. Stay away from villa or something like it came in a box. <laughs> That's what Michael was drinking. It, was, it came in a box. So it's deadly. Um, Rashawn, I'm I'm curious about uh, you know, what advice would you give leaders that, you know, a lot of times we see folks do like a PD here, a PD there with um diversity, equity, and inclusion work. And a lot of times we see that that is not as effective as like actually weaving those practices in, like you know, I, you know, even in my work, I've gotten a lot of pushback from like, oh, well, this training, you know, here and then next training three weeks from now. Um, how do you get leaders or, or schools to really um, and, and how have you done this to really embed this work so that it's, it doesn't feel like a patchwork uh, that you're just sewing together randomly? But this is like something that we're committed to and, and that we really, really think um, is going to move the needle in our school. Yeah, I, I'm a transparent guy. This is something that I don't, I, I have a good recommendation, but I don't think we nailed. Um, and, and what I would say is the piece that we did is I think we went a mile long instead of a mile deep. Um, and so when I think back to the different trainings, let's say if we had eight, um, we jumped topics the first five. Um, yeah. And then at that point we were like, okay, wait, people, this is taking people to too many places, right? Where mm -hmm. DEI work is tapping into multiple things. And we've had five sessions and they, you know, they're hour and a half long and folks are, are feeling pretty raw here, right? So let's go to the next topic. No, let, like, let's pause, let's get some feedback and let's see what folks want to learn about in a deeper way. Okay. So my recommendation mm -hmm. would be to um, pick fewer topics so that when it comes to implementation, you're not worried about how to implement from eight different PDs. You're like, we have this one topic, there've been four sessions on it and let's go truly deep. Um, that's just something that we didn't do well, but I'm thinking about what we're doing for next year. So that's why I can offer you that. Appreciate that. Perfect. Appreciate that. Uh, Rashawn, last question of the night. This flew, this flew by. Uh, we're gonna ask you and we're gonna ask you to give us one sentence, right? And if it needs to be elaborated on, we'll, we'll, we'll do that. But one sentence, if you could change one thing in K-12 education in 2021, what would it be? And by K-12, I don't mean your particular school. I mean yeah. K-12 through around the country. <laughs> what, would be, uh, what would be the one thing you'd change? If I could change one thing about K-12 education, I would, hmm, this is a great question two things popped to mind, but I'm like, no, that's going to be an unpopular opinion. I'm going to say that. Um, let me see. Oh, we, I'd love, we'd love an unpopular opinion. We will love your unpopular. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to put it out there, but there's a caveat to it. So work with me, people. Um, <laughs> I would bring back the concept in the right way uh, of no excuses. Uh, mm. And what I, and yeah, everybody like, ah, you can't do that to kids. Like, <laughs> um, uh, I think um, you can't make excuses in life. So the concept is right. Um, I do think that there are, are a lot of people who've implemented the approach wrong. 
Um, and so if you're like, you can't do that to kids, I'm with you when folks are doing it uh, incorrectly. Um, but I think conceptually, um, no excuses for me was about what we talked about this evening. It's about clear expectations and getting folks to meet those and giving them feedback when they don't. Um, and I feel like there's been a shift from that because it sounds cooler to be like, we are not a no excuses school, um, right. but then we don't want children to make excuses. And so I'm not saying we need to have students in line completely silent and shirts tucked in and you know tape on their shoes and many of the things that I've experienced. Um, but there's a way to create an environment that's like, there are clear expectations in here and you're not gonna make any excuses about them. Um, and so I would bring it back um, and then just work with people to really understand what it means and what implementation looks like. I think at the time when folks were implementing a, a no excuse approach, there were like three or four school systems that were doing it. And it was like, we gotta do what they're doing because they're getting great student outcomes, right? right where when you looked at the schools, if you went into any network, um, what no excuses looked like and felt like uh, was completely different. Um, my school was uh, full of expectations and I don't take excuses from children, um, but I'm not cruel. Uh, you know, I love children and, and I know that um, I wouldn't wanna feel a certain way if I was a middle school student and something was being done to me and thinking that way has made me successful as an educator, so. Bring it back. Let's have some more expectations for kids, <laughs> for teachers. You know, let's up the ante. Let's make school sound again. Because the one thing I can say is like, I don't know too many no excuses that got no results. So maybe they're aligned. Uh, all right. Well, brilliant as always. Uh, and on, on that note, we're gonna we're gonna end it tonight. Rashawn, thank you so much thank for being so much. here. Uh, are, is, are you officially now the Beyonce of education? Is that what we're I saying? I am. I was about to say Beyonce out, y'all. <laughs> and quickly, hold on. Have you ever had, you're a Long Island guy like me, have you ever had pizza with sesame seed crust? Oh, my God. So I was listening to that. And let me tell you a quick story and I'm going to let you go. <laughs> so if you were like me and you grew up on Long Island, you cut school every now and then and you went to the beach. Gilbert, yeah, Jones, right. wherever. And you know, if you're from Long Island, you had a car or somebody did. So I, I went to school in Long Island and there was a field behind us and you would cut school and you would run through the field because it would get you to where like the neighborhood was. Um, but right before you got to the neighborhood, there was a building. It was called, and it's probably still open, Pizza Express, Sunrise <laughs> Highway. And it was the only place that I had ever tasted that put sesame seeds on Pizza Crust. And are you a fan? I hated it. Oh You're my God. <laughs> I like anything that get caught in my teeth. I was best smile in high school. No, no, no sesame seeds for me. Uh, but it is a Long Island thing. And I, it, the worst is that the sesame seeds, like they'll drip all over the pizza. So you're eating your cheese and then there's like a seed in it. Oh, it's too much for me. We're going to uh, edit this in editing. We're going to make it sound that, like you said that you love sesame seed pizza because I cannot <laughs> handle that. I'm just kidding. Uh, Rashawn, thanks so much for being here, man. Uh, we loved hanging out with you. We uh, we appreciate you uh, taking the time. Absolutely. And uh, for Antonio and Skyrocket, we want to thank you all for listening, especially our friends in France and Japan. Oh, yeah. And uh, this more. was Observations. And until next time, friends, keep on rocking. We'll talk to you soon. See you all later. This has been great. This was Informal Observations with Skyrocket Educator Training. Sign up for our mailing list at wewillskyrocket.com. 
look out for our next episode.